The reading is taken from the first letter of John, chapter 5, verses 1 to 5 and 10 to 12. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God. By loving God and carrying out his commands. This is the love for God to obey his commands. And his commands are not burdensome. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Anyone who believes in the Son of God has this testimony in his heart. Anyone who does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because he has not believed the testimony God has given about his Son. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. This last week, uh, I had the privilege of being with some of our students, about eight of our students, in our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. And we were gathered there with 500 students from 240 other universities and colleges from around the country and indeed from around the world. In fact, on the opening night, uh, they said that we had, I think, 13 countries represented, but then the MC said, but maybe there's some people here that from other countries we didn't know about. And then he asked for anybody to stand, and we had about another 10 countries represented. So we had people from all over the world, all college-age people, from uh, every, you know every continent and many different nations. And we gathered to think about what Jesus Christ, what type of leadership Jesus Christ might exert. And in the middle of the time, we heard from Vice President Gore, we heard from senators and congressmen, and uh, we heard from students. But for me, at least, one of the highlights was to hear from a congressman from the Deep South. And I, I apologize that I don't remember. I think it's from, from Georgia or Alabama, and I apologize. I don't remember the exact state. His name is John Lewis, African-American gentleman. And he shared his story. And he told how he grew up in the rural South in a very small community, only dirt roads leading out to the community, and how he always had it on his heart to be a preacher of the gospel. But he was only five or six years old when he decided this, and so he, he had trouble getting a congregation together to preach. And uh, so he, his job was to help feed the chickens. 
And uh, so he would gather all the chickens together in the chicken house and then preach the gospel to them. And uh, he said he had a fairly good response, actually, and it encouraged him. And uh, he talked about these humble beginnings. And when he was 15 years old, he, he listened. He'd never been to a city, just been out in this rural area, this small, small town. And he, when he was 15 or 16 years old, he heard Dr. Martin Luther King preaching on the radio. And something in his heart was gripped for the oppression of his people, African-American people here in the United States. And something tugged at his heart. And so he wrote Dr. King a letter, this little 15-year-old boy. And Dr. King called him and invited him to come to Atlanta or to Birmingham and meet him. And so he got on a bus and his parents set him on this bus and he went off on this long ride to meet with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And King was touched by this young man's faith both in Christ and desire to be a help to his people and to his whole nation. And so he began to do training in nonviolence. You know that Dr. King trained people and taught that we should bring about social change through nonviolence through passive resistance. And he took some of the techniques from Mahatma Gandhi in India, who had led his nation to independence from the British through nonviolent means, but he took the heart of it from the gospel, which is Jesus Christ. He took the heart of it from the teachings of Jesus, which is exactly where Gandhi got his thinking on nonviolence, as he himself has said. And so he was trained in nonviolence, and they started to do sit-ins in the, in the beginnings of the civil rights movement. And John Lewis was a part of those sit-ins, and he went to one place, and they went to an all-white cafeteria. And these black young people in their late teens and early 20s, and they sat in this, this horrible act of disobedience to the law of the land. Black people sitting where white people said they shouldn't sit. And as soon as they walked in, a, a mob of young ruffians, whites, came in and just started to beat them black and blue. He was on the marches. He was on the Freedom Riders trips. He told us as he stood there in the Marriott Hotel in Washington, D.C., very distinguished member of Congress, he said, I've been in jail 40 times. I was jailed just for going into places that blacks were not supposed to go. And he said on Bloody Sunday when we marched across the bridge in, in uh, perhaps the turning point of the civil rights movement and they were met by Alabama state troopers there, he said all he could do was pray as he, as he walked right along with Dr. King right in to these troopers. And the troopers said, you have three minutes to disperse. And he was telling us this story. You have three minutes to disperse, but then one minute later they began to charge the crowd. Well, it wouldn't have mattered because the crowd was not going to disperse. They'd trained for this moment. And they had trained to walk right into the, the face of tropers with clubs who would beat them to the ground. And they had been trained through the teachings of Jesus not to offer resistance, not to strike back. And Congressman John Lewis was beaten to the ground and beaten unconscious. Taken to a hospital. On Bloody Sunday, on that bridge. Now, what was he doing? And why was he doing it? How did this little kid who was trying to preach to chickens 
wind up in a bloody pool on this bridge. Why did he get there? What was he trying to accomplish? And what did it accomplish? Well, first and foremost, he told us that he was simply trying to live for Jesus Christ. And that in his situation, in his context, in his heart and mind, it took a decision to stand up against an oppressive legal system, which not only held down the African Americans, but in all injustice always hurts the perpetrator as well. And so it was holding down those of us in the white community, myself included. So he, first and foremost, he had come to know Jesus Christ. He had been gripped by the love of Christ. And he knew that oppression and injustice was wrong. And to know Christ and to not do something about it was a contradiction in terms for Congressman Lewis. He said, if, if you could have told me in those days that I would be standing here as a congressman, a representative in the United States Congress, a black man, I would have just laughed in your face. He said, I wouldn't have thought it could be possible. So first, he was trying to follow Jesus Christ. But second, he was trying, though maybe he didn't know it at the time, to make a huge change in our nation. It's interesting to me that it was on a bridge. Because in a sense, the whole group of people, whites and blacks alike in that march, they were not only African American people, they were Jewish people and Christian white people. And they were beaten down as well. And on that bridge, they were trying to gain access to the American way of life for all people. They were trying to build a bridge from oppression into openness and access for all people. And they did it. Not perfectly. We have a long, long way to go as the riots of recent years have shown. And as you look at all the statistics sociologically about our urban areas, we certainly have not arrived at Dr. King's dream of a place where black children and white children will play together, where, where, the, where the scars of racism won't affect them, where people will be judged not by the color of their skin but by the content of their character. We have a long, long way to go, but we've come quite a ways too. Because Congressman Lewis was standing there addressing us as an esteemed member of the legislative body of our entire nation. They gained access. But it came at a price. The gospel, I believe, is Jesus Christ himself. But Jesus Christ did some things, thought them some things, and taught some things. But the gospel itself is Christ. The scripture which Dr. Jaiwardin read this morning said, If you have the Son of God, you have life. If you don't have the Son of God, you don't have life. And, and the Bible doesn't say that when we appropriate the Son of God into our lives, that we just have normal life. We have the very life of God, eternal life. And eternal life is not just a life that goes on and on and on. It's a life that is rich with the texture of the life of God himself. Rich with the smells of God Himself. Rich with the colors of God Himself. Jesus Christ gained access for us who had strayed away, who were living in a self-inflicted oppression. And He, on a bloody bridge, gained access for us back to the Father. I'd like to show you a piece of art this morning. It's a modern piece painted in 1970. 
by Bernard Buffet. It's a picture of the crucifixion, as you can see. And unlike some of the earlier art that we've looked at from the Renaissance and some of uh, the other forms of art we've looked at, in this modern art, and I think this is perhaps uh, true of much modern religious art, there's a starkness to it. There's a shocking character to it. There, right in the center, with crisp lines, is Jesus Christ hanging from a cross. It's an odd picture to choose when I'm preaching on the fact that Jesus Christ is good news, isn't it? Even the, even the word Jesus and Christ on each side is drawn in, in, in stark letters. The lines coming out from Christ aren't the halo of a warm birth, but they're the sharp lines of pain and torture inflicted on him as his lifeblood is drained from him. You know, in the Rembrandt pictures and the others, you, you seem to illustrate it with a, with, without a blemish, with a, with a smoothness, with a beauty. And in their cultural context, there was, there was an attempt to say in the art itself that in the midst of this horror, there was something beautiful. But in this, you don't see much beauty, do you? You have the two people on the ground, and it's hard to tell. They're glancing at Jesus, one at Jesus and one at the other. And you don't know for sure if they're glancing in adoration, though it looks like the woman on the left maybe, or if they're glancing in contempt as perhaps the person on the right is. But they're taking in the fact that this man was dying. And that's where we're left at the side of the cross, at the foot of the cross, looking at it and wondering, what can this possibly have to do with good news? If, you had, if I could take you to that bridge, and I could with video film, but if I could take you there in reality and you could stand on the concrete of that bridge at that moment, if we could go back in time and you could see John Lewis lying in a pool of blood there on that bridge, you might say, what good could this possibly do? But he was gaining access for many who would come on behind him. And he was paying a heavy price for it. According to the scriptures, that's what Jesus Christ has done for us. He's gained access for us to something we couldn't gain access for ourselves. Let me read from Romans chapter 5. Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, and let me add that wherever you see in the New Testament something about faith, I guarantee you that it is faith in a person. It is faith in the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It is not faith in a system. It is not faith, faith in, in, in anything else other than Jesus Christ himself and God the Father and the Holy Spirit. Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. For you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. 
Very rarely will any man die, for even a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Do you see Paul's logic? Jesus Christ gained access by this act on the cross. It was a bloody Friday. There was a cost to pay for the news which we call good. It was not good news for Jesus himself as he hung there and had scoffers and and worshipers alike looking up to him and wondering. But he was gaining access, building a bridge to us, inviting us to a new life, a life that is only life itself. Because much of what we live and call life is just death. You know, the advertisers know that we're not satisfied, don't they? If you watch the television, if you watch the ads, what are they trying to convince us? They're trying to convince us that if we eat Wheaties or drive an Acura or we do this or we wear a certain type of clothes, that we'll be peaceful, joyful, our lives will have adventure and security and meaning. And if they can convince us that somehow eating frosted mini-wheats will bring that about, then they'll sell more frosted mini-wheats. But the truth of the matter is, only the life of God brings life. Only Jesus Christ himself, who is the life of God, brings life in all its fullness. And he goes to death, ironically, in order to gain access for us to life. The next piece of art I'd like to look at is back to the Dutch master Rembrandt. I want you to just look at it for a moment. I'm not going to comment for a moment. I just want you to take it in. It's quite a contrast, isn't it? This inviting face, these large eyes. Even the tilt of the head, even the sense that he's, he's looking at a particular person with warmth. The strength of the picture. Look at the strength. This is no weak man. This is no man trying to figure out what he believes. Wondering what his life is all about. Where is the light coming from in the picture? It's coming, I believe, from himself. Or at the very least, the light shining on him shows true life itself, looking out at an unseen bystander. There's texture, there's depth, but there's a humanness to it. Look at his forehead. Look at the bone structure. This is a very human Christ, a very warm and inviting Christ. But I want to say that this is the same Jesus Christ who hung on that cross which we looked at just a moment earlier. This is the same Jesus Christ who bled to death on that cross. This same warm and affirming face went to the cross to demonstrate, to prove God's love for you. And to make access available for you to God the Father. Paul tells us that sin came into the world through Adam. 
He tells us that all of us followed in Adam's footsteps and lived a life of sin. Now, what does that mean? You know, I think we need to find new ways of saying the old message. And in 20th century North America, my observation is that sin means breaking a rule, being a bad kid. The consequences are that you're sent to your room or you have your hand slapped or in a bit larger society, you're put in jail. And it's an apt image. I just don't think it gets at the depth of it. It doesn't pull at the guts of it. Because sin, biblically speaking, is missing out on the very life that is the only life that's called life. The life of God himself, eternal life. Sin is not so much the breaking of a rule that makes you a bad person. Sin is the missing of life by not living the way God has called us to live. By choosing instead small, broken idols of our own making and then worshiping them, whether it's the materialism of North America or some other false idol in another culture. God is calling us to true life. True life is the opposite of sin. Sin closes us off to love. All sin is a failure in love, said one Bible commentator. I've been thinking about that since last year when I first read that sentence. William Barclay in his book, The Mind of Jesus, said all sin is a failure in love. And I've been pondering that. Is that true? Is that a true statement? Are there some sins that are just the breaking of a rule? Or are they all a breaking of the heart of God? And I've come to believe after thinking about it for a year that he's, he's right on target. That every single sin, is, as we call it and as the scriptures call it, is a breaking of the heart of God. That he wants for his children the best of life. That he wants for his, his children security. But security not found in, in fashion things that we create, but found in a loving relationship to himself. That he wants us to choose to live with our brothers and sisters on this planet in a way that Jesus lived amongst us. And as we've just seen in the former picture, he lived amongst us. While we were nailing him to the cross, he was dying on our behalf. So what is the good news? Well, I think the good news is that this inviting person, Jesus Christ, who is the very life of God, loved us so much that he would walk across that bloody bridge, that he would be beaten down by troopers, that he would be nailed to a cross in order to gain access for those who are sitting right here in the room to the love and the forgiveness of the Father. But not only to the love and forgiveness, because love and forgiveness lead to life. Love and forgiveness lead to holiness. Holiness is growing in the ability to live as Christ would live. Holiness is growing in the ability to make choices for life rather than death. To make choices for reality rather than for half-truths and lies. One congressman told us we had lunch in his office with ten students we took these little box lunches up, and this man had met Christ in the last several years of his life. And he said, you know, I was really struck when I heard someone say at a, at a rally that a half-truth is a whole lie. And he said, I realized I'd been telling whole lies for a long, long time in my personal life and in my public life. 
And I decided on that day that I would tell no more half-truths. And he said, it has cost me dearly. You see, coming to know Christ will not allow you to stay in your same old way of living. Coming to the warmth of that inviting face, which paid a price on that grueling cross, will not allow you to tell half-truths, which in actuality are whole lies. If you're truly tugged by the heart of Jesus Christ, your life will begin to change. And according to Jesus Christ, if your life does not change, then there's very good reason to ask if you indeed have ever been touched by the love of God in reality. He said, you know a tree by its fruit. Bad fruit does not grow on a good tree. He said, out of a person's heart speaks their mouth. So if our heart is changed, what comes out of us is meant to change more into the likeness of Christ. I'd like to close by leaving this slide on the screen and inviting our choir to come up right now and come up as I'm speaking. And one of the things I would like to do more this year in chapel is allow you a chance, both in quiet ways and in other ways, to respond to the message that you've heard. Today it will be through the singing of the choir. They're not singing to entertain you this morning. They're singing to God. They've selected a piece, and uh, this, the, the painting will have to change in a moment because we're going to put the word, the English words to the Latin piece that they're singing, which is the middle part of the Roman Catholic worship service, which is called a Mass. And in the middle part, it starts with praise and glory to God. Because whenever we come into the presence of God and realize we're in His presence, we're supposed to be lifted up in praise. But as soon as we're lifted up in praise, we notice how broken we are, how partial our lives are, how tawdry our holiness is. And so whenever you come into the presence of God, it's natural then to move to penitence and repentance and confession. In the middle piece of this song, you will hear them singing for mercy, the mercy of God. And then when, upon receiving the mercy of God, you sense that you are truly forgiven by that bloody Friday, that you're truly invited by the Lord Jesus Christ into His own family and into a return of fellowship with the Father, then there's glory in the highest to God. And this portion from the Mass that they will sing is offered for you to worship with them, to enter into the music, to enter into the words. That's why we'll have them on the screen. And to some extent in your own life, to respond to the access that Jesus Christ has won for you on the cross. Please rise for the blessing. Before we have the blessing, I just want to say a few words what it means. What is a blessing? Jesus said, wherever two or three are gathered in my name, I am in the midst of you. Could you believe during this hour that we have been here that Jesus has been present among us? in a wonderful way. 
telling us that to live is Christ. And when we go, Jesus leaves with us a blessing as he always did when he was with his followers. So that is why in many churches, in many traditions, and also here, we end with a blessing that Jesus and his life is with us as we go. So let us bow for the blessing. May God our Father, who is the source of all life, be the life and the health in your bodies. May our Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son, who is called the light of the world, be the light of your minds and the vision of your life. May God, the Holy Spirit, who is called the God of love, be the love of your hearts and the peace and the joy of your lives. May the eternal God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Come down and remain with you forever. Amen. You are dismissed.